You're listening to the Youth for Life podcast with Michelle Baum, director of Why for Life at Lutherans for Life, where we prepare youth to be gospel-motivated voices for life. Be sure to stick around after today's live recording of our Chats for Life program to find out how you can be live too on our next Youth for Life podcast. I want to begin with prayer, uh, and then we will we will start talking about abortion, our topic for this evening. So, Pastor Duncan, if you can lead us in prayer, that would be great. Okay. Um, since this is um, a hard topic for us, um, and we want you to make sure that, and I think Michelle's going to go into this more as well, um, but that it's a you know a topic that you just um, you get some information, but you don't become uh, radicalized and and go off um, in a warring fashion, but also that you don't um, cower in despair. Um, let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, in your deep compassion, you rescue us from whatever may hurt us. Teach us to love you above all things and to love our neighbors as ourselves. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. All right, just like um, Pastor mentioned, again, my concern at in talking about abortion is, well, first of all, we need to talk about it because it's a, a really important life issue. But we also want to make sure that um, when we get to different stages that we take a moment to make sure everybody's on board and, and ready for the next topic. What we want to do first is really kind of set the, the foundation and give you a little bit of history on abortion and infanticide. And to do that, I'm going to go ahead and share a screen. Um, Pastor Duncan has prepared a, um, a PowerPoint screen or a PowerPoint presentation. And just like in the past, um, I'm going to go ahead and send you a link for this. So you don't have to uh, madly take notes or anything like that. Um, but just, just uh, sit back, listen, and prepare questions, those sorts of things. So. All right. Thanks, Pastor. This is not a scholarly presentation. This is uh, simply an opportunity to kind of trace um, historically uh, abortion and infanticide from BC times up through the, the, the date of Jesus and the early church. And then we're going to make a, a quick jump from there into modernity and uh, talk about people and some of the attitudes that brought us from the uh, early part of the 19th, uh, 20th century uh, into where we are today with Planned Parenthood. So you can see on the slide that's here, um, the terminology. Now, uh, this definition of what abortion is comes from a, uh, a resolution um, that was uh, before the LCMS Senate, and um, they gave some guidelines in this resolution to go back and study both abortion and the reproductive technologies. So this was just uh, taken out of something that came off the LCMS website. Uh, spontaneous or induced premature expulsion of an embryo baby from the mother's uterus ending the life of the baby. This can occur through the failure of the embryo to implant in the uterus before the mother even knows she is pregnant or by causing the loss of a baby who has already survived implantation in the uterus. So, of course, we know spontaneous abortion also 
carries the, the name miscarriage. And I think that we're going to talk about that at a, at a later time. Uh, we'll also talk about birth control at a later time. And birth control is different from abortion. A birth control is um, a contraceptive that has the idea of not allowing a pregnancy to, con uh, to occur, no conception to occur at all. So this terminology of abortion definitely deals with the fact, as we Christians understand, a baby has been created through conception and in the various stages of moving through the tube, um, the embryo in implantation is either taken out or sloughed off in some way. So this practice, um, historically, uh, has been known through the centuries. Um, there is evidence that um, Middle Assyrian laws, the uh, Asherah laws, um, spoke against abortion in antiquity. And you can see some of the, the bullet points um, that an abortion um, was an offense against familial ties, that the mother and child relationship was going to be broken. Um, one of the big factors about uh, abortion in uh, the antiquity states was this was a crime against the state itself because states needed citizens. They needed soldiers for protection. They needed more people in population. Birth was considered the way to increase the population, obviously. Um, and so w if somebody stopped that birth, um, it was a crime against the state. And because of that, uh, those who were found guilty of it, the women who actually caused abortions were uh, impaled on stakes and denied burial because there was in that pagan society the idea that um, if they buried them, their blood and their death would make the land impure, polluted, and uh, would potentially hurt future birth rates. So here's some of the verbiage from that Assyrian law. You can see it covers three different things. If a man strikes the wife of, uh, of a man, if, if a man strikes the wife of a man in her first stage of pregnancy and cause her to drop that which is in her. So they didn't have the term abortion, but um, cause to drop that which is in her. It is a crime and there's a penalty. A man strike a harlot and cause her to drop that which is in her. Again, penalty, restitution for a life. And then there's the, um, the clause, if a woman of her own accord drop that which is in her. So she causes the abortion. They shall prosecute her. They shall convict her. They shall crucify her. They shall not bury her. And if, even if she dies from that, which as we know throughout history, that's one of the complications, side effects of abortion. You can die from it. Then even then they'll crucify her and not bury her. It's pretty, uh, pretty um, strict. Um, in ancient Greek and Rome, you had a, a little bit of a change over time. Initially, um, abortion was legal. And on the right side of the screen, you can see an ancient Greek uh, society and some of the early philosophers actually talked positively about abortion. The philosopher Aristotle says, when couples have children in excess, let abortion be procured before sense and life have begun. And so um, there was varying degrees in the ancient world of when life was, was there the quickening? Maybe you've heard that in, in some times where you could actually feel movement. And before that, they, they weren't sure that life was there. Of course, we know that life begins at conception when the, the sperm and the egg have come together and, and the egg is fertilized. And there's no movement that's felt. But prior to that, the sense of quickening, uh, and I think that's where the sense of life have begun. So some of the early philosophers said, yeah, if we get an excess, let's, let's let abortion happen. So that was, that was part of ancient Greek and Rome. And then 
it, it changed over time. Uh, there was a need for citizens again. Roman leader C or Cicero probably changed some of this. And by the first and second century, uh, you have attitudes that children again seen as that material and financial asset. There's, there's a reason that offspring uh, need to be uh, born. Uh, they're going to support their parents and they're going to, in the pagan world, be responsible for the burial and the honoring of those parents. Of course, they're praying to pagan gods. And so there's this sense that you need uh, people to remember you in the afterlife and to honor you in the afterlife. So you need those children to do that. There was also an, an increase in adoption. It became a practice in the Roman culture. So those who couldn't afford to take care of their children in the poor status would often let their children be adopted into the higher classes of people. And that became a widespread practice because they could afford to do that. So when it comes to a biblical perspective, again, um, to do any research on uh, the term abortion, you're not going to find Hebrew or Greek words that are going to be translated as abortion. But we do find some, uh, the evidence of uh, this idea existing. Um, many of you know the Mosaic Law, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Um, this comes straight out of Exodus chapter 21. Uh, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, which would be the abortive process, but there is no harm. The one who hit, they shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him. And the issue pay as the judge determines. But if there is harm, and then you've heard the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, well, this is that statement. Then you shall pay life for life. And it goes on to complete that. You find also in the New Testament that uh, the idea of abortion and infanticide, which we're going to talk about here soon, were not something that the church uh, agreed with. So one of the earliest Christian doctrines, the Didache, uh, it's an extra biblical source, but it's a, a doctrine, it's a, it's a document that outlines a lot of doctrinal thought and understanding of the early church. It had a statement in it that said, do not abort a fetus or kill a child that is born. So again, the, the biblical perspective, and you can see um, the idea of what Mona brought up earlier, that God creates life and that all life is precious. Uh, really centers around uh, a, a couple of things. One, that human beings are made in the image of God, right out of Genesis chapter 1. Um, God made man and woman in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. And if he's created humanity in his image, and then we hear in the psalm that this image begins in the womb, that God is forming and knitting the inward parts in the womb, then it's, it's, it's counterintuitive in a Christian mind that you would take the image of God being created in the womb of a woman and abort it. So it's a counterintuitive to the whole idea of God's design. The New Testament, um, there were many scholars and bishops uh, who made comments about abortion. I just pulled a couple. Basil declared that a woman who had induced an abortion should be tried for murder. So again, they understood life begins in the womb. Augustine spoke extensively about abortion. He wrestled with theological issues, especially the existence of the soul of that baby even in the womb. Uh, and so he spoke against the idea that a woman or a family should end that life through abortion because they're ending the soul. <clears throat> Have you ever thought about why you don't read uh, in the paper every day 
about um, people running stop signs or stoplights, um, it's pretty common knowledge that you don't run stop signs or stoplights. It's not something that has to be talked about all the time. Everybody understands that. Some people have said, well, the New Testament is very silent on the issue of abortion. Well, one of the reasons you might understand that, it was simply assumed that early Christian practice, that abortion was something that was not accepted. And we see that even in the way that Luke talks about the unborn, not only Jesus, but um, John the Baptist, uh, in uh, Jesus' mother's cousin there, Elizabeth, as they leapt uh, in the joy of the presence of Jesus in his mother's womb coming together. Um, abortion wasn't even thought of. So that's why you're not going to have a lot of discussion in the New Testament uh, about abortion. It was just not a, a common accepted practice. So something that goes along with abortion is infanticide. Now, um, abortion is prior to uh, the baby's birth uh, out of the, um, the womb. Uh, infanticide is just what it says. It is the killing or the practice of murdering the infant that has been born. This has been something, and, and this quote comes from a, a a scholar back in 1891, so excuse kind of the, the language we put in some bracket to kind of describe what he's talking about. But he says it's the term or practice of murdering infants, which was very general among the ancients, and it still prevails among rude or pagan nations. The Greeks and the Romans, with all their high notions of civilization, were guilty of favoring this horrible practice by legislative enactments. He goes on to talk about Sparta. Uh, the law that required a child immediately after birth was to be exhibited to the authorities for inspection, and if its look was not wholesome or if its limbs crippled, it was thrown into a deep cavern at the foot of the mountain Tagetus, and it said that this law had a wholesome effect. The idea was that it made women uh, a little bit more careful about what they did during their pregnancy, eating, drinking, exercise, uh, proving to be excellent nurses. So next couple of slides, we're going to talk a little bit about this infanticide. How did it happen? Mostly uh, by death, by exposure. The idea that uh, if there is a weak or a weaker sex and the father doesn't want that child, just takes it out and lets it die by wild beasts or the weather. So you just abandon those children out to the elements. So this kind of uh, infanticide has... Um, Evidence has been found throughout the world. It's been widespread. If you do any research on this, you're going to find in all these areas that are listed, people will write about it. I pulled a couple of quotes, uh, some older quotes. I thought it was interesting, this one in China, not less than 9,000 children are exposed in the streets of Peking, and that is the part of the duty of the police to carry away in carts every morning, those that have been exposed at night. Some yet alive, but all carried to a pit without the walls and buried promiscuously. But again, in the pagan world, these things were happening, but in Judaism and Christianity, uh, these things were frowned upon, both the infanticide and abortive uh, procedures. The New Testament uh, witnesses uh, that life is sacred and a gift from God. And this comes, um, you understand this from some of the, the, the Old Testament again, how God taught us that uh, we were created in his image, that we were unique, and, and uh, uh, that we're all important, that uh, Christ would tell us that uh, every part of the body is important, that the early Christian writers would talk about um, how uh, every part fits together, 
and builds this beautiful temple that is Christ Jesus our Lord. And, and so families, the, the Jewish family understood that when you're born into the family, you're accepted into that family. And the whole idea of this exposure, leaving your children out, you know, was totally passe. They didn't, they didn't like that. So the, the Greek and the Roman writers, as it says in the middle of that quote, noted that it was a peculiarity of the Jews that infanticide and exposition were frowned upon and all children born were accepted as members of the community. And Christians inherited this view that infanticide was murder from their heritage. So I said we'd make a big jump, and we have. We've gone from the first and second centuries now to the late 1800s, early 1900s, and we're going to talk about this person, Margaret Higgins Sanger. Her maiden name was Higgins. She was born in the late 1800s to immigrants. She was an Irish uh, American Roman Catholic mother with her Irish uh, immigrant father. When it says he was a free thinker, the, the, the biographies talk about how he was into uh, talking about politics and drinking, which was probably a pretty popular thing to do at that time. He was a, uh, I can't remember, he worked in a factory of some kind, I can't remember what it was, but um, he wasn't very successful. You know, in those days, in the industrial days, in the early days of the Industrial Revolution, immigrants uh, filled factories and there were a lot of slums. Her mother, uh, Margaret, uh, was one of 11 children, but there were other children that didn't survive. Her mother died early, and she often saw her mother sickly, trying to care for um, uh, those uh, pregnant uh, children that she was caring for and the younger children. Her mother died at an early age, I think around 40. Uh, and she attributed that early death to uh, frequent pregnancies and childbirth. She went on to uh, try to become a nurse. She went to, to school. She didn't complete her nursing school, but she did witness in some of that school and some of the work she did. She, she ended up going in later life back into a nursing field, even though she wasn't finished schooling as a nurse, but she witnessed the uh, poverty conditions of the working class in industrial America. When she uh, married, she moved to New York, and we'll talk about that in a bit, but she saw these conditions and um, that there was numerous childbirth going on and that uh, women at that time had no access to birth control or information, and that became her life focus to make birth control information available to women um, of all socioeconomic backgrounds and races. She married, she left nursing school, she had three children, she became involved with feminist and socialist movements that were very popular in those ages. She settled in the area of Greenwich Village, it says it's a bohemian enclave uh, known for radical politics. Her and her husband became involved in those politics and she started hobnobbing with some pretty important people in that area and in that era. She joined the Women's Committee to the New York Socialist Party and the Liberal Club. She became uh, one who participated in workers' strikes. Then she began educating uh, the women around 1912 about sex, and so she wrote this column called What Every Woman Should Know, which she turned into a publication later on. She also what, uh, wrote a, another one called What Every Mother Should Know. Again, I said uh, she worked as a nurse, and during that time she did a lot of uh, working among the poor, the working class, and she saw a lot of uh, ladies, uh, women who had survived back alley abortions, as they call it, 
or tried to self-terminate their pregnancies. This is um, kind of the turn in her life. Um, around 1914, she takes on a more radical turn, and you can see her first magazine that she produced called The Woman Rebel. Look at the taglines, no gods, no master. What does that uh, mean? She's trying to throw off all authority, and nobody can tell her or any other woman what is right for them. Uh, if you read the details, and, and you know certainly as you get this PowerPoint yourself, uh, you can uh, make it a little larger. It's kind of hard to read that, but within that first column, the aim, there's uh, a section that talks about one of the, the things that she wants to, to specifically do. And I highlighted a couple of notes on the side on the left. She, as the editor of this, wants to make a series that she is going to discuss for girls from 14 to 18 years of age. And she talks about the present chaos of sex atmosphere. It's difficult for the girl to know just what to do or really what constitutes clean living without prudishness. And she goes on throughout the column to talk about how um, um, from time to time she's going to give advice. Now, I, I find this interesting because uh, as, um, as this movement moved into Planned Parenthood, which we'll talk about in one of the last slides, but that's really one of the things that Planned Parenthood tries to do in schools now in these age groups. And it's really some of the same potential focus that they're trying to subvert or, or get into um, the household uh, apart from mom or dad's philosophy and teaching and present their own ideas. She becomes the woman rebel herself. She, um, she becomes very radicalized and she finds that um, the use of violence as a tool of striking workers in order to secure women's rights to sexual freedom is an okay thing. Out of this woman's uh, woman rebel journal, she uh, prints eight of them over a period of time. It's during this time that she comes into contact with the law because in the 18, late 1800s, gentleman by the name of the last name Constock, and I can't remember his first name, I think his first name is Anthony. He was the author of laws against obscenity, and these obscenity laws were applied to birth control devices and birth control advertisements, and we can talk about that in another section or another topic. But these Comstock laws were the ones that were applied against her and her magazine. She faced some jail time, she fled to Canada, than Europe. And it's there while she was fleeing these uh, jail sentences that she meets some other very well-connected people in uh, politics and um, kind of society. Havelock Ellis, H.G. Wells, the uh, famous writer. She has affairs with both of them. Within a year and a half or so, she returns to America. But during this time that she's gone to Europe and hobnobbed and had these affairs, she's decided she no longer wants to be married. And even though she's had three children, one of her children dies, and she decides that she's no longer going to have her children either. So when she returns to America, um, she ends up divorcing her husband and abandoning her children. And she goes to full-time work establishing her birth control clinics. And she is the one who's credited for coining that phrase, birth control. That's where she begins to publish her magazine, The Birth Control Review, 1917. And it goes all the way through the 1940s. Um, there's a link there that if you type that into your uh, internet, you can pull up a few of the um, uh, publications from that link. Uh, it's very interesting to go back and read those. Um, it's very difficult to read them as a Christian because there's so many uh, views that are just completely opposite of what 
what we believe as Christians. And she is a very outspoken uh, person against the church, which in, in that day, um, she was outspoken against the Catholic church because that was who was outspoken against her. But you can see that she writes a lot of books as well. They begin with uh, publications in 1917 and move on. I have read a couple of her books and, and they are hard to read too. Woman in the New Race, The Pivotal of Civilization, two of her uh, classic books uh, are difficult to find copies of, but if you can find one and read it and you can stomach it, you find a lot of information of what forms the feminist movement, the Birth Control Society, Planned Parenthood, and the ideas that are still a part of those organizations today. And you can see on the left side that uh, this birth control review, uh, the length of its uh, publication and the um, uh, groups that are associated with it, uh, it's kind of a, it's, it's the connection of how we get to Planned Parenthood. American Birth Control League uh, then becomes um, American Birth Control um, League, the Birth Control Federation of America. These quotes you can spend some time with later. Uh, just kind of look at some of the highlighted parts. These are some things that appeared in the Birth Control Review and some of the philosophies that, that are coming forth. So um, she talks about women and uh, pregnancy, and she says she has not become the mother of a nobler race, but a mere breeding machine grinding out of humanity which fills insane asylums, almhouses, and sweatshops, and provides cannon fodder that tyrants may rise to power on the sacrifice of her offspring. She really hates that, that God wants children to fill the world with that command. Um, she sees a lot of bad things with the population uh, growing in the world. Um, she writes about the... Uh, what, what is going to be uh, known as eugenic um, ideas of birth control, the idea that um, through birth control you can uh, rid the population of qualities that they didn't think were acceptable. And so um, you can see that last quote that I highlighted, to keep alive the sickly and the weak who are allowed to propagate and in turn produce a race of degenerates. This is the kind of language that is filling their, um, their, their writing. Here's some others that are writing in the birth control review. Uh, in one word, my experience has led me to believe that the great argument for birth control is that contraceptive information should be especially available to the poor classes, prevent dire indigence, and improve the average of racial vigor and intelligence. We'll talk a little bit more about that, but you'll see that Planned Parenthood's idea of placing their clinics in neighborhoods is based a lot on these thoughts. Here's some things in, in reference to uh, uh, birth control and eugenics. Um, this writer says, Godspeed the day when the unwilling mother with her weak puny body, her sad, anemic, unloving face, and her dependent wine will be no more. In that day, we shall see a race of American thoroughbreds, if not the Superman. That idea of, of building a race of thoroughbreds was uh, one of the taglines for her birth control review. Uh, and so this idea of birth control and eugenics in order to build a greater race, um, that sounds a lot like Nazi Germany as well, right? And in fact, one of the writers that she was um, hobnobbing with became the, um, the main source and implement behind Hitler's grand scheme. He ran um, much of the eugenic program under the Nazi regime. Here's another one. Birth control by itself, freeing the reproductive instinct from its present change will make a better race. 
Eugenics without birth control seems to us a house builded upon the sands. It is at the mercy of the rising stream of the unfit. Um, this, this whole idea is, is, is racial betterment. Go ahead. So um, on the uh, top left, uh, this uh, was put together by uh, a group. These aren't actually statements that she said, but the statements that Margaret said in her life and in her magazine make these statements true. Um, she believed in the superiority of the white race. Um, she uh, pushed for forced sterilization. Uh, she opposed charity and welfare programs for the poor. And she ushered in uh, this world where abortion enabled uh, the idea that some lives matter less. The eugenic tree that's pictured on the uh, uh, right side uh, was actually published in one of her magazines. And you can see the quotes that uh, are attributed directly to her right out of the magazine. Eugenics aims to uh, better secure babies. Um, and uh, the real question is, can we prevent the ignorant, the poor, the vicious from filling the world with their children? Terrible ideas. Go ahead. So that led right here to the modern day organization. And these are right off the Planned Parenthood site. Uh, these are their own quotes attributing their history to this woman. Uh, they trace their roots back to her. She had a revolutionary idea that women should control their own bodies and thus their own destinies. And so uh, they trace their history. She opened up these clinics. Um, she incorporated the American Birth Control League and that eventually um, became Planned Parenthood Federation of America and Planned Parenthood Federation International, uh, which is really the, the thing that I find surprising, and this is one of the things that um, comes out in, in studying Margaret Sanger in this movement. She spoke often about um, not having abortions as an option, that birth control could end abortion in America. And yet here we find her legacy is that America and the world are um, importing abortion at rapidly growing numbers. Sorry to have to bum you out with all this. Thank you very much, Pastor Duncan, for the information. Do any of you have questions about it? Yeah, Libby? Okay, so like when that lady said, um, you know, like she opposed giving to like the poor and chari like charities for the poor and those who are in poverty, but then she wants to build like a superior race like don't those two statements co almost contradict themselves like in a way she wanted she, go ahead pastor she wanted the poor to not reproduce so in other okay. words she would rather distribute the reproductive technologies and birth control so that those and and this, this is, these are terms that come up imbeciles feeble-minded um degenerates do not reproduce. And this is yeah. all over in their um, uh, conversation. Okay. Any other questions? I think it was we move forward, you're going to, to be able to see the connections to the history of Planned Parenthood and Margaret Sanger and, and what we're seeing today in America. Thanks for joining us for today's life topic. Check out whyforlife.org or email Michelle at whyforlife.org to find out how and when you can go live with us at our next Chats for Life session. Or join us next time right here at Why for Life Podcasts, where youth learn how to be gospel-motivated voices for life.